Eliab and his fellow priests began rebuilding the sheep gate. They dedicated it and installed its doors. After building the wall to the Tower of the Hundred and the Tower of Hananel, they dedicated it. The men of Jericho built next to Eliashib, and next to them, Zachar, son of Imri, built. The sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. They built it with beams and installed its doors, bolts, and bars. Next to them, Merimoth, son of Uriah, son of Hakoz, made repairs. Beside them, Meshalem, son of Berechiah, son of Meshezabel, made repairs. Next to them, Zadok, son of Barna, made repairs. Beside them, the Tekoites made repairs, but their nobles did not lift a finger to help their supervisors. Joida, son of Paseah, and Meshulam, son of Bezadeah, repaired the old gate. They built it with beams and installed its doors, bolts, and bars. Next to them, the repairs were done by Melatiah the Gibeonite, Jadon the Maranothite, and the men of Gibeon and Mizpah, who were under the authority of the governor of the region west of the Euphrates River. After him, Uziel, son of Harahiah, the goldsmith, made repairs. And next to him, Hananiah, son of the perfumer, made repairs. They restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Rephiah, son of Hur, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, made repairs. After them, Jediah, son of Haramath, made repairs across his house. Next to him, Hattush, the son of Hashabniah, made repairs. Malchiah, son of Harim and Hasub, son of Pathath Moab, made repairs to another section, as well as to the Tower of the Ovens. Beside him, Shalab, son of Halahesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, made repairs, he and his daughters. Hanan and the inhabitants of Zenoa repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it and installed its doors, bolts, and bars, and repaired 500 yards of the wall to the dung gate. Malchiah, son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth Hakarem, repaired the dung gate. He rebuilt it and installed its doors, bolts, and bars. Shalon, son of Kozhoa, ruler of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He rebuilt it and roofed it. Then he installed its doors, bolts, and bars. He also made repairs to the wall of the pool of Shelah near the king's garden, as far as the stairs that descend from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, son of Azbuk, ruler of half the district of Bethzur, made repairs up to a point opposite the tombs of David, as far as the artificial pool and the house of the warriors. Next to him, the Levites made repairs under Rehum, son of Bani. Beside him, Hashabiah, ruler of the half ruler of half the district of Kela, made repairs for his district. After him, their fellow Levites made repairs under Binu, son of Henadad, ruler of half the district of Kela. Next to him, Ezer, son of Yeshua, son of ruler of Mizpah, made repairs to another section opposite the ascent to the armory at the angle. After him, Barak, son of Zabai, diligently repaired another section, from the angle to the door of the house of the high priest, Eliashib. Beside him, Merimoth, son of Uriah, son of Hakoz, made repairs to another section, from the door of Eliashib's house to the end of his house. And next to him, the priests from the surrounding area made repairs. After them, Benjamin and Hasab made repairs opposite their house. Beside them, Azariah, son of Marseah, 
son of Ananiah, made repairs beside his house. After him, Binui, son of Henadad, made repairs to another section, from the house of Azariah to the angle and the corner. Palal, son of Uzai, made repairs opposite the angle and the tower that juts out from the king's upper palace by the courtyard of the guard. Beside him, Padiah, son of Parosh, and the temple servants living on Ophel, made repairs opposite the water gate toward the east and the tower that juts out. Next to him, the Tekoites made repairs to another section from a point opposite the great tower that juts out as far as the war of Ophel. Each of the priests made repairs above the horse gate, each opposite his own house. After them, Zadok, son of Immer, made repairs opposite his house. And beside him, Shemaiah, son of Shechaniah, guard of the east gate, made repairs. Next to him, Hananiah, son of Shemel, Shelemiah, and Hanan, the sixth son of Zappah, made repairs to another section. After them, Meshulam, son of Berechiah, made repairs opposite his room. Next to him, Malchiah, one of the goldsmiths, made repairs to the house of the temple servants and the merchants opposite the inspection gate and as far as the upstairs room on the corner. The goldsmiths and merchants made repairs between the upstairs room on the corner and the sheep gate. This is the word of the Lord. My name is Frank. I'm, I'm one of the elders here. It's uh, great to see you if you're here for the first time or the, or the 100th time. Um, I'm just going to pray for us um, before, we, before we get into Nehemiah 3. Lord God, thank you that all scriptures God breathed and uh, it's useful for teaching, rebuking and training in righteousness. God, thank you that um, we can become wise um, by um, every single pen stroke of your word. So I pray with this seemingly uh, obscure text, I pray, Lord, that you would um, do something um, by your Holy Spirit this, this morning that, um, that makes us wiser um, and, um, and that enlarges our hearts for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, so we find ourselves in week three of a 12-week series in the book of Nehemiah. Um, if you missed the first week, um, I did quite a lot of work in laying down the kind of the, uh, the groundwork and the, um, some of the kind of historical stuff that really helps you get the most out of the book. Um, sadly, the recording didn't work, but I put my sermon notes up on the uh, sermon archive on, ha- on the Hallows Church website. Um, so that's hallowschurch.org. Um, so let me just quickly recap where we're at, and I'll try and be brief with this. So everything in the book of Nehemiah happens approximately 140 to 170 years after the Babylonians conquered Judah, destroyed Jerusalem, and carried off God's people into exile. And they were in exile for 70 years, and during those 70 years, the Persians, they kind of rose up as the new dominant empire, and they defeated the Babylonians. So now the people were in exile, but under the rule of the Persians. And about 90 years before Nehemiah comes onto the scene, King Cyrus of Persia lets the exiles go back to Jerusalem to start rebuilding it. And we read in Ezra, which is the book that comes directly before Nehemiah in our Bibles, which was probably just all one book with Nehemiah. So Ezra and Nehemiah, think about it as all one book. And you can read in Ezra about how under Zerubbabel and then later Ezra, they achieved two of their kind of major goals. The first goal was to rebuild the the temple in Jerusalem, and the second goal was to reteach the people the word of God. 
So they're on a high, they've, they've, they've achieved these two goals, and then they go for the third goal, which is to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. But as we read, and as we looked at, the king um, at the time when they started rebuilding those walls was a different king than the king that originally gave them permission. And he got scared as the walls started to be built because he feared that if they got too strong that it would potentially be an issue for him and his power. So that king, King Artaxerxes, tears down the walls and burns the gates. And that's pretty much where we then arrive at in the book of Nehemiah. So we're in the year 445 BC. Nehemiah hears the news from Jerusalem that the walls have been torn down, that the gates have been burned. And he weeps and he mourns for several days because he loves Jerusalem. It's got a special place in his heart. And then he spends four months in prayer. Four months praying over over the whole situation, and when he's, when he's done with, with those four months, he's in a, a position to get up and do something about it. We looked at this last week in chapter two. Nehemiah was the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes, the most powerful man in the world at that time. So he had this intimate relationship with him, and he had this trust as well. So he goes in and he asks this king, can I go back and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem? He asked the same king that, that ripped the walls down, um, to go back and do precisely the same thing. And somehow the king grants that request. King Artaxerxes yes, says, yes, go. I'll actually, I'll bless you with security. I'll, I'll, I'll bless you with timber. Go and do it. And we, re- we read that because the, re- the reason behind the favor that Nehemiah had in, in the presence of the king is it's all because of God's hand upon Nehemiah and God's hand upon this project to restore and, re- and rebuild Jerusalem. Nehemiah goes to the people. He says, this is the plan. We're going to rebuild the walls. And he says, look, I've seen all, these, all this evidence that God is, God is with me. And then the people rise up and they say, let's start rebuilding. And that brings us to today's passage, chapter 3. Now, when I first read chapter 3 earlier this week, and I sat down to start my sermon prep, honestly, I thought, how am I going to preach a sermon on this text? that isn't like five minutes long. <laughs> it, it looks like, on first glance, to be a lot of hard-to-pronounce names doing pretty tedious-sounding manual labor. But the Bible, the Bible has an can- uncanny knack, and the Holy Spirit has an uncanny knack, of taking a passage that, on first glance, doesn't really look like there's much there, and as you dig into it, as you go through rounds and rounds of reading and noting stuff down and, and studying, you start to you start to kind of almost like reveal these like nuggets of gold in the text. And I actually laughed out loud a few times in my prep because I was like, this is profoundly rich. This is so relevant for us, so relevant for for our church. So as I said, Nehemiah has got some priceless nuggets of truth in there. And I think these nuggets of truth can be grouped into three headings which should should be coming up. So number one, a divine building project. Number two, a diverse and united work party. And then point three, a defined role for everyone. So let's look at the first one then, a divine building project. So if you look at the first verse of this chapter, it says the high priest Eliashib and his fellow priests began rebuilding the sheep gate. They dedicated it and installed its doors. After building the wall to the tower of the hundred, 
and the tower of Hananel, they dedicated it. So it's, it's interesting that chapter 3 starts off with, with a dedication. But this is the only verse in all of chapter 3 that mentions any kind of dedication. And it's, it kind of leaves us thinking, why did, they, why did they only make a dedication at the beginning? Like, why wasn't it something that they did you know, in, in every part of the project? Well, if we turn to Nehemiah 12, 27, we see that when the wall is completed, they have another dedication ceremony at that point. So, in chapter 3, why does Nehemiah include this point about the dedication? He's going to write about it later in chapter 12. So, why does he mention the dedication here in chapter 3, verse 1? Well, I think there's a reason why there's a bookend at the start and the end of the rebuild project. There's dedication at the beginning, dedication at the end. I think it's to remind us that this was a divine project, not a human project. As we've seen through the book of Nehemiah so far, Nehemiah is someone who he views all of life through a theological lens. He views literally everything that happens to him, everything that happens to the people around him, through a lens understanding that God is sovereign, that God is good, that God is loving, and that God's hand is kind of moving history forward in every way. And we looked at that a lot last week. It's here to remind us that this was a spiritual work before it was a physical work. Well, next question then. How can, how can building walls and gates be labeled a spiritual work? Well, we've got to remind ourselves that Jerusalem was home to the first ever temple in the Jewish religion built under King Solomon around 900 years. Sorry, around 500 years, sorry, before the events in the book of Nehemiah. The temple was where God's presence dwelt, where the priests performed the sacrifices, and where people came to be instructed in the scriptures. Fair to say then that Jerusalem was the epicenter of the spiritual life of the people of Judah. As we know, the temple had been destroyed by the Babylonians in around 586 BC. But a few decades before Nehemiah comes onto the scene, the temple had been rebuilt. They, they, tried, they, they did their best to restore the temple as the place of worship, as the place where the people could come and be in God's presence, to hear teaching and to have the priests do the sacrifices on, on their behalf. But here's the thing. The temple was vulnerable it was vulnerable to more attack. It was vulnerable to more destruction if the walls and the gates weren't rebuilt. Walls and gates were everything back then in, 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 that, in that city stronghold you know, type of um, existence where it was all about the strongest, you know, the strongest army. If you had a bad wall or a, a faulty gate, it was game over. So rebuilding the walls, rebuilding the gates was just as important a workers build in the temple because without the walls and gates, the people couldn't peacefully come and worship God. They'd always be living in fear. They couldn't go about their weekly rhythms of worship without looking over their shoulder about what might be coming over the hill. So this is why the priests dedicate the first part of this rebuild project to God. It wasn't merely a physical endeavor, but a spiritual one also. 
Now, reflecting on temple worship in the Old Testament, it gives us much to ponder about New Testament worship. As I've mentioned before, the New Testament authors understood the church to be the new Jerusalem. Let me give you four examples of this. They should be coming up on the screen. So number one, Jerusalem was supposed to be a light to the nations, showing the whole world what it means to be in a relationship with God. And in Matthew 5, verse 14, Jesus says to his followers, you are the light of the world. Number two, Jerusalem was where people journeyed to worship and to hear teaching. The church is now the place where believers gather to offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, Hebrews 13, 15, and to hear God's words read and preached, Colossians 3, 16. Number three, Jerusalem was the physical expression of God's kingdom on earth that had to be physically defended. The church is the spiritual expression of God's kingdom here on earth, which isn't defended by physical force. John 18, 36. And lastly, number four, Jerusalem was the place where God's physical presence dwelt in a physical temple. 2 Chronicles 7, 1 to 3. The church is now the place where God's people enjoy God's presence. In what were radical words at the time, Paul writes in Ephesians 2, verse 19 and 20, 21, says this, So then, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Jesus Christ himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So Nehemiah's recording of the priests dedicating the walls, it teaches us about how Christians should approach building God's church. And when I say God's church, I'm talking about the big, the big C church, the global church. You see, the big C church is holy and sacred. No matter how tarnished her, rep her reputation may be, the church is still God's chosen vehicle for renewing the whole earth. We can probably all think of churches that have been hit by a scandal. And when these things happen, we can be tempted to withdraw or even vow never to return. But we must remember, no matter how many times the church fails Jesus, Jesus will never fail his church. He's never going to fail his bride, the church. Here at the Hallows, that truth should give us wind in our sails as we embark on a rebuilding mission together. The Hallows is sacred, and I'm not talking about the building. As I just mentioned um, just now, the, 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 the idea of the church is that we are the physical stones that come together and God's presence as well. So I'm not talking about this building being holy and sacred. I'm talking about you guys, us as a community, being holy and sacred. And God loves us. If we, if we could just get that, it may be in like a 1% or 2%. Um, sorry, if we, could, if we could get that 1% or 2% more than we currently get it, then that would, that would do a huge work in, in our own hearts and in our own church. God loves us. He's committed to us. He will not let us down. 
And secondly, the church's success is in the hands of God. You see, the priests dedicate the first fruits of the project because they recognize that the act of starting and then the act of finishing will all be for the grace of God. The knowledge that God is in control, it takes the pressure off us because the fruitfulness of the church depends on God's strength and not on our strength. Here at the Hallows, we're but a few weeks into our collective rebuilding effort. So we would be wise at this early stage to dedicate our rebuild project to him, consciously placing both ourselves and our church into his hands. So please be praying for our church. There's no more important work in this season than the work of prayer. So would you consider praying alone, praying with friends, praying with your missional communities midweek, and coming to our Saturday morning prayer meetings, which are a sweet time of fellowship and prayer together. We need to dedicate all that we do, every single last thing that we do to God, recognizing that our church is in God's hands and that the long-term success of, of us as a family of faith is in, yeah, is in, his, in, in, in his control and his hands. So we come to the second point then in, 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 this, uh, in this chapter, um, a diverse and united work party. So if you go through with like a highlighter and you highlight every single like individual group or you know, all the different people that are listed out, there's 40, 48 different individuals, families, groups, and peoples who together do the work of rebuilding. So you've got priests, you've got men of Jericho, you've got Levites, you've got the Tekoites, you've got the temple servants, you've got goldsmiths, you've got merchants, you've got rulers, and, and then one guy brings his daughters along, so you've got rulers' daughters as well. And you've got individuals from all backgrounds, even the son of a perfumer. Another thing that struck me as I read this list, obviously, number one, it's a diverse list, right? But then the second thing that strikes me is that, that none of them are professionals. None of them are described as professional builders. In, in fact, they specialize in, in everything but building. And as a side note, in the local church, God isn't asking us to be professionals. We don't have to have been to seminary to lead a great Bible study in missional communities or, or share something at the front of church during the congregational encouragement time. You see, God delights to use us even when we don't feel qualified to do so. And that's often when actually when we step out in faith and do something that we feel unqualified for, that's when God gets the opportunity to empower us by his Holy Spirit so that he gets the glory and we don't get the glory. One theme that runs throughout the Bible is God taking unlikely, unqualified people and working mighty miracles through them for his glory and for other people's good. Another interesting detail to note is the, rep the repetition in chapter 3 of beside them, next to, and after them. So you get this sense that not only were they an incredibly diverse bunch, but they're working in this, in this harmony with one another. They're building beside each other. They're building next to each other. And they're building in this logical order as well, like with some doing work and then others doing work after others. If you've ever seen a construction crew in full swing, it's a sight to behold. 
Me and my wife, Debs, had our roof redone a few years ago. And watching those guys up on our roof, it was like poetry in motion. There's like 10 of them. They're all like clipped in, so they're not going to fall off, thankfully. And they're all buzzing around, but they're not banging into each other. They've all got their own little job. And it was just like, it was utterly, utterly incredible to watch. And they got it done so fast and so efficiently. And this is the kind of collaborative, highly effective work that we see here in Nehemiah 3. And this is remarkable because, as we've already noted, Nehemiah's work crew was a diverse bunch. But despite their diversity, they became a potent workforce because they had true unity. Unity is really, really hard to achieve, even with people that are like each other. So when you've got a group of people that are vastly different, it's even more difficult to, to get this true unity. This is another telltale sign of God's gracious hand at work among the people. You see, this kind of unity in the advancement of God's kingdom is only made possible by God. Or you could say it's a miracle. When we think about the global church, we see another example of people from all different backgrounds united in their love for Christ. It's a beautiful thing. And it represents God's heart for every type of person on earth to come into a relationship with him. In Revelation 7-9, we get a glimpse of what the, heaven, the new heavens and the new earth will be like. It says this, After this I looked, and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Here at the Hallows, we believe that belonging to a diverse community shows us the heart of God, and it gives us glimpses of what's to come, and it gives us a different perspective on life and faith. We long to more fully represent the diversity of Seattle together, welcoming people from all walks of life into our church. We affirm that we will all grow spiritually when we become more diverse and that we will look more like the church that God desires us to be. So let's be praying to that end, both individually with friends in our missional communities midweek and in our Saturday morning prayer meeting. Lastly on this point, we also affirm here at the Hallows that just as Nehemiah's crew were united in a miraculous work of God, so we are united by a miraculous work of God. And that work is the gospel. Jonathan reminded us last week during the congregational encouragement time of Romans 5 verse 8, which tells us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, the gospel is the great leveler. It, levels, it completely levels the playing field. We are all sinners no exceptions. We are all saved by grace, through faith, no exceptions. It doesn't matter how much money we have, where we come from, how educated we are, how important we are, whether you're what society would call a good person or, or what society would call a bad person, we are all sinners in need of the grace of God. You see, the gospel exalts us to the highest place 
We're, we're given this intimacy, this, this incredible relationship with God. But, but, but before it exalts us, it humbles us. It humbles us to the dust. Because we have to admit, we have to admit that we needed the one and only Son of God to die to get us out of the mess that we've made for ourselves. That is, that is the, the ultimate humbling thing that anybody can accept in their lives. You cannot accept the gospel without being humbled by the gospel. And that's why gospel people are humble people. It's the pattern that every single salvation story takes. Humbled first and then exalted. We need humility to accept Jesus' help. And here's the thing. Then we need to remain humble throughout the rest of our lives with Jesus. And that's, this is almost even harder than the initial humbling is hard, but then remaining humble is arguably harder. Because see, if we ever find ourselves comparing ourselves to others, ranking and judging people, feeling superior to some and inferior to others, then we've forgotten the gospel. True humility lays the foundation for unity. A local church can be filled with a, with a group of people who might not normally have anything in common, and somehow they have this brotherly and sisterly bond which goes so deep, this bond of unity. And that's a miraculous, that's a miraculous work. It's the miraculous power of the gospel made real and tangible by the power of the Holy Spirit. So as we seek to be a united church, let's remember that the source of our unity is the humility that comes through the gospel. And let's ask God for the Holy Spirit's help in applying the gospel to our hearts daily to keep us humble and soft. Lastly then, a defined role for everyone. The last thing that stands out in this passage is that the diverse crew all had different roles to play in the rebuilding project. And there's a difference in three key areas. So, number one, there's a difference in the amount of work. So some do more than others. There's a difference in the type of work. Walls, gates, towers, houses. And thirdly, there's a difference in the desirability of the work. So think Dungate versus Fountain Gate. Number one, then, the amount of work. So... If you go with me to chap- sorry, if you go with me to verse 13, you'll see that there's a vast difference between what Hanan and the inhabitants of Zenoa get done, namely the valley gate and 500 yards of walls. So that's like five football pitches worth of walls, pretty impressive. And then Azariah, what does he get done in verse 23? It says this, he made some repairs next to his house. So five, fo- five football pitches and a gate versus a couple of repairs next to his house. Now, the passage doesn't say anything here about the morality of those two groups or those, those individuals. So it doesn't seem to be anything to do with a morality thing or a work ethic thing or the effectiveness of, of each group, it seems to be more of a capacity thing. Less of a godliness thing and more of a capacity thing. Now, we talk about capacity a lot, and rightly so. Life can be an absolute nightmare if you try and live outside of the, 
the boundaries that you have in life, the capacity boundaries. We can we, you know, we maybe think of either times in our own life where we've burnt out as a result of making those mistakes, or maybe we can think of other people as well. It can, it can turn life into a nightmare. But see, different, different, people, are, different people are graced for, for different things. You see, some people, some people have a capacity level that's just, it's almost daunting to us. It's, it's, almost, it's almost unreal to us. I, I can think of a, a close friend of mine who went and planted a church in Dublin, which is uh, capital city of Ireland, and, you know, huge, like, bustling city. Um, not the kind of place that you go if you're faint-hearted to try and make it, in, both in church planting and in the professional world. And he had no, he had no financing whatsoever for this church plant. So he got, he got a job in sales for a digital marketing firm, and he worked five days a week, and then he would do all of his church and family work on, on the weekends. But he did so well, he was so productive, that he was basically getting six or seven days worth of work done in those five days. So he went to his boss and he said, would it be possible for me to go down to four days a week, and then I'll have more time with my family and more time to invest in my church plant? And his boss said, yeah, go for it. So... He does that, works four days a week, and then, he, then he's ranked top in his whole company for sales in four days a week. So he goes back to his boss and he says, can I, can I go down to three days a week and to carve out you know, time for my family and my church, my church plan? And uh, his boss said yes. So he was doing a full day's work, in th- sorry, a, f- a full week's worth of work in three days, and then he was then carving out more time to be with his family and to invest in his church plant, which at this point was, was growing um, quite a lot. Now, Steve was like seven or eight years older than me, so he's kind of like an older brother in the faith, and I used to look at him, and I just used to feel so inadequate. Like, I just used to think, I, if only I could have like his capacity level. And sometimes I would try. Sometimes I would try and be Steve, you know? Try and uh, live with the kind of capacity that he would have, but... It, you know, it was never going to be me. I was never going to have the, the same level of capacity and effectiveness as this guy. And, the, and see, the thing about maturing in life and faith is knowing your capacity and then having the discipline and the patience and the backbone to stay within your capacity and to do that peacefully. This can be really hard when we see obvious needs around us. But living outside of our capacity for too long will actually mean that we're less helpful in the long run. Matt McCormick, who's our deacon of finance, wisely suggested to me recently that everyone at the Hallows should be aiming to serve at 80% of their capacity to ensure a healthy 20% margin. And I think that's a great principle. The hard part is doing it. One way that we prevent overextending ourselves is if we spend more time soaking in the truth as we considered last week, that God has his gracious hands over everything. That he has our own individual lives in his hands, that he has our careers in his hands, that he has our families in his hands, he has our church in his hands, he has our city in his hands, and he has our world in his hands. Once we figure out the measure of grace that God has placed on our lives, 
Then the goal is to explore how to use that capacity. Should that capacity be assigned you know, at home, at work, at church, in the world, or a, a mixture, of, mixture of all those things? You see, when Nehemiah was assigning people their work, he didn't despise the small things. He didn't despise Azariah's little contribution to the side of his house. Why didn't he despise that work? Well, Nehemiah knew that the wall was only going to be as good as its weakest point. So if, if Azariah didn't do that work next to his house, then that would be the weak spot that an enemy could exploit. So it's actually really, really important that Azariah did that work. Even though it was small, it was still an important work. And Azariah didn't have any capacity to do anything else, but his work was still valuable in Nehemiah's eyes, and his work was still valuable in God's eyes. You see, life ebbs and flows, right? We all know that. The older, the older folks, maybe more than the younger folks. People go through different seasons of life. Some seasons, you've got a lot of capacity. Other seasons, that, that capacity might shrink drastically, sometimes overnight. And this is okay. If you used to serve a lot, but now you're in a different season and you can't serve as much, that's totally fine. If the opposite is true and you went through a season where you found it hard to serve and now you've come into a season where, praise God, you have more capacity, then that's great. And you should be asking at that point, how can I use that, that extra capacity to serve and bless those around me and, and my church? Whatever happens, God spare us from becoming, becoming the type of church that idolizes capacity, that idolizes those with much and despises those with little. There should be no hierarchy of capacity in our church. We should celebrate those who God has given capacity, much capacity to, and we should also celebrate those that are faithful in the, in the little things. People who are using the precious little capacity that they have for God. Some of us may do the equivalent of 500 yards of wall building, and some of us may just do repairs next to our house. Like so many things in God's kingdom, it's the heart behind the action that truly matters. Like the poor widow in Luke 21, 1 to 4, who Jesus commends for her generosity towards God, even though she only put two small coins in the collection plate. We can trust that even if our contributions are small, comparatively small, that Jesus sees our hearts and that he commends us when we are faithful with the little that we have. So secondly, we've got the type of work. So Nehemiah's work party, they did a variety of work. So varied, in fact, that no two people or group does the same thing. Everyone's in a defined role in the project, and that meant that the project was highly successful. As the Hallows Church, we talk a lot about being part of the body of Christ, and what that means is that there's one body but many parts that all have different functions. So it is with the church. We want to be a church where everybody can find a way to serve which upbuilds the body. Whilst we do have areas on Sundays that we could use more volunteers like kids' work and musical worship, 
There's also loads of other areas of church life where we would value people's time and gifts. Missional communities, our midweek small groups, they're a great chance to proactively serve. For example, offering to take the lead on prayer or Bible study weeks, making meals, or staying afterwards to help the host clean up their house. There are so many ways, big and small, that would really bless our church. Given our size as a church, there's something for everyone to do here at the Hallows. And we should celebrate that fact because one way people grow is through serving. People grow spiritually and relationally as they serve side by side with others. And people grow personally as they acquire new skills and build their confidence in areas where they've never had a chance to before. If you want to get more involved here at the Hallows, but you don't know how, send me an email, frank at hallowschurch.org, and I'll do my best to help. All right, last point here then, the desirability of the work. So we see that there's a vast difference in the desirability of the work. Let me read out verses 13 13 to 15 again for us. Hanan and the inhabitants of Zenoa repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it and installed its doors, bolts, and bars, and repaired 500 yards of the wall to the Dungate. Malchiah, son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth Hekarem, repaired the Dungate. He rebuilt it and installed its doors, bolts, and bars. Shalon, son of Kol Hose, ruler of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He built it and roofed it, and he installed its doors, bolts, and bars. He also made repairs to the wall of the pool of Shalar near the king's garden, as far as the stairs that descend from the city of David. Do you notice anything in those three verses? Verse 13 describes the most physically impressive feat in the whole project, Five football pitches of wall plus a gate. Verse 15 describes arguably the most desirable and aesthetically pleasing portion of the project. The fountain gate, the wall of the pool near the king's garden, and the stairs that descend from the city of David. It all sounds so beautiful, right? And who do we have sandwiched in the middle? Verse 14, we we read that that Malchiah, son of Rechab, repaired the Dungate. Now, the Dungate was used for carrying all forms of refuse out of the city to be dumped in the garbage dump outside the city walls. And as you can imagine, it probably didn't look or smell anything like the fountain gate and the wall next to the pool near the king's garden. If you could sign up for any part of the project, you would have picked Shannon's job. His work was near water, and a garden must have been a pleasant place to work. Perhaps he had the shade of trees, and he probably could smell the herbs and the flowers from the garden. Malkia, on the other hand, has arguably the worst job, slaving away in the heat of the day with the stench of the garbage dump in the air. This must have been a tricky assignment for Nehemiah to get someone to sign up to. But, Mar- but Malkia did sign up. Who was he? Well, we don't know much about him other than he was an important man. He was a ruler, governing over a whole district. 
So he's perhaps not the type of person you would have expected to roll up his sleeves and begin moving rocks to rebuild a gate that was named after excrement. What can we learn from Malkia? Well, number one, he didn't see this work as beneath him. Even though he was a powerful man, he did not let that stop him taking on the Dungate. Number two, he did not mind doing a job that looked and sounded less impressive than others. Think about it. His work is immortalized in this one single verse in an obscure book of the Old Testament. That's, that's all we know about this guy. He will be forever known as the Dungate guy. Thirdly, it wasn't about him. He wasn't chasing glory for his own name, but simply focused himself on getting his bit done, even if no one noticed or praised him for it. Marquia's attitude gives us a great example of how to approach the work of building God's kingdom because he points us to Jesus' example described in Philippians 2, 5 to 11. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by, by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Fundamentally, the work that we do for God isn't about us. It isn't about our glory. And we should push back really hard against any temptation to make it about us. Marquia was content to rebuild the Dungate, perhaps because he had an unwavering belief that he was putting his hands to holy work, doing his bit in the divine project at hand. Perhaps he also knew that God smiles on those who serve him in the hidden things. Matthew 6, 1-4. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no rewards with your Father in heaven. So whenever you give to the poor, don't sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be applauded by people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. Applying this to the Hallows Church, would we be a church that is looking to God for our rewards? Are people who are willing to do the things that are unseen or unimpressive? Because everything done to build God's kingdom is sacred and holy work. Would we, would we be those who care much more about God's glory than we do about our own glory? Would we follow Malkia 
and ultimately Christ's example of how to lay down one's life for one another and for God's kingdom. Why don't you pray with me? Father, thank you for the richness of your word. Thank you that we can come to texts that at first kind of perplex us and uh, we don't quite know what to do with them. And then your Holy Spirit goes to work and helps us to mine out so much truth and so much, so much good stuff, Lord. And I thank you that we've been able to do that um, with this chapter of your word, Lord. Um, I pray that you, would, um, that you would unite us as a church, that you would help us remember that the Hallows Church is sacred and holy, that it is, that it, that, it, that it is an incredible privilege to be partnering with you in this work. And Lord, thank you, Lord, that you can unite even the most diverse groups of people in your name. And that's a miraculous work. And, and so we ask for it in your name, God. We ask that we would be united um, across every single um, kind of wall that, that society might put up around us, that that you would smash all that down, God, and that you would you'd make us a truly united people. And that would be a beautiful thing both, both for us and, and for, our, um, for our city, Lord, for our neighbors. Just pray, Lord, that, um, that you'd help us to be wise about our capacity and wise about the best ways to put that capacity to use, Lord. And pray that we would not, dis- not despise the small things. And I pray, Lord, that ultimately... Like Mark here, we would uh, we would be happy to do that, which is unseen, for your glory and for and for for the good of your people and for the good of the world. In Jesus' name, Amen.